battle for the mind will be fought in the video arena. Render your television sets inoperable, mind. Why do you watch these films? I've seen enough horror movies to know any weirdo wearing a mask is never found. Whatever appears on the television screen emerges as raw experience. Ultimate experience in interactive terror. Monster movies are education. Television is reality. And video world is flesh. And reality is less than television. Well, quote me. You won't mention my name on the TV. Your reality is already half video hallucination. If you're not careful become total hallucination. Hello, Videodrones, and thanks for tuning into Channel 83. We are the TV guide for weirdos, the video word made flesh, evangelists of the obscure. And this week, we are continuing our dive into the horror cinema of East and Southeast Asia with the help of a very special guest. That's right, we are joined yet again by friend of the cast and host of the Best Little Horror House in Philly podcast, George Heffler. How are you doing this evening, George? Hello, happy to be here and to talk about fun giant monsters. Hell yeah. So if you listen to the cast, you should be familiar with George's work as it was only a few months ago when we had him on to talk about (laughs) Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. But for the uninitiated, why don't you tell us once more just a little (laughs) bit about your show and yourself? Sure. So, uh, I am the host of the best little horror house in Philly. Like you said, uh, it's a show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And, um, you know, it's just a real fun time where whatever movie the guest wants to talk about, I agree that it's the best horror movie ever made for the duration of the episode. And, uh, we just have a real nice time talking about movies that we like. And, uh, that's kind of how I approach a lot of horror is I try and see the good in, in it. And, uh, you know, I, don't let it stop me from saying something is bad, but um, you know, I I, I try and bring a pretty pro- uh, excuse me a pretty positive attitude to uh, my movie watching experiences. Beautiful. So yeah, I mean, I've been on George's show. He's been on this show specifically episodes one twenty seven and eighty two. So yeah. go check those out if you extra, haven't, baby. Yes, and uh, I believe you will have some more extra-related content coming from your show in the future, so that's right. be on lookout for that. And um, so this time, George actually volunteered to come on the show <laughs> and talk about tonight's film, which is the 1985 North Korean kaiju epic, Polgasari. And it actually ended up working out pretty well, because not only was I having some trouble trying to decide how I wanted to approach this one, But also, you, George, have recently gotten pretty immersed in South Korean genre cinema. So there's some nice synchronicity there. What's it been like to dip your toes into that? Uh, It's been really great. I have really found myself enjoying the hell out of it. And uh, I did mention this to you. I think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, guns are not really as big of a thing in Mm. Korean culture. And so in a lot of their action thrillers and stuff, which, to be clear, are usually very grotesque and violent, (laughs) Um, the choreography is usually really kind of beautiful because it's a lot more like knives and hatchets and stuff and Mm. a lot more hand-to-hand combat, which just, I think, makes for some really interesting um, fight scenes and allows the film itself to do some pretty interesting stuff. Plus the fact that it's so new in the scheme of film uh, Mm -hmm. has really allowed them to build up their influences and... um, kind of hit the ground running in a really interesting way that that i mean so many people talk about 
uh, the the genre blending of South Korean cinema. I remember when Parasite came out, it was all everyone mm-hmm. everyone could talk about. And you know, Bong Joon Ho is really amazing at it, but he's definitely not the only one who does that. Right. I think that Korean cinema, by and large, does a really interesting job of kind of jumping back and forth between genres. And for someone who's not necessarily used to it, it can cause a little bit of tonal whiplash. But mm-hmm. once you really get like used to that sort of thing, it, it just is so interesting to not have to be in one attitude the entire time. Yeah, um, those are all really good, interesting points. I think for me, when I first started uh, kind of getting into the cinema of East and Southeast Asia, I think what you're talking about with the tonal shift, kind of the thing that was the most jarring to me is how much like slapstick comedy you can see <laughs> in a very serious movie. Yeah. And it's also interesting the thing, the point you made about them not really having a gun culture because I just watched Memories of Murder on your recommendation like this weekend. And I feel like all the times when there normally would have been a cop pistol whipping someone in that movie, they instead just did like a jump kick to the chest. <laughs> yeah, but you can't tell me that that's way more fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, way more effective, honestly. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, and one of the other ones you talked about and introduced me to The Man Standing Next, which I just watched last night, may end up having some relevance to tonight's discussion. Yeah, that was a that was another pretty cool one. It's more of a like political spy thriller than a lot of the more uh like action focused ones that mm-hmm. are sort of more um popular in terms of the the crossover, things like I Saw the Devil and stuff. But it was pretty cool and, and it's it's the story of the south or yeah the south korean president who had held on to power through various machinations and uh basically becoming a dictator um mm-hmm. after the korean war and, and the and the uh and the uprising and, and the revolution and everything and their democracy was so undermined by the people who took power that um the the head of the kcia basically felt like he had no other choice but to institute a second coup <laughs> and uh and and basically install a new leader but that also had a lot of long-term ramifications because that the person who came in after them wasn't great either and so it's just really interesting to see a political thriller like that without having sort of the cultural baggage of being immersed in that culture i mean look mm-hmm. don't get me wrong i understand that of course, who the person who made this film is bringing their own bias and everything to it, and I'm only seeing one side of the story here. Right. And, you know, the fact that it is a pretty complex issue between, like, am I supposed to root for this military-backed coup or the dictator? Like, it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. kind of a rock and a hard place in terms of who <laughs> you're supposed to root for, but I think that that's kind of what made it so interesting for me. Definitely, and um, we will be definitely getting into some of that stuff because uh, I feel like the whole Korean peninsula is sort of a blank spot for a lot of Americans. We kind of just learn in school, oh, there was that war. We came in to rescue the South Koreans, and we've been best friends ever since. And South right. Korea is basically just America Jr., but in Asia. And that's kind <laughs> of all we are taught about it over here. So yeah, we'll definitely be talking a little bit more about some of that stuff later on. And So when I was sitting down and thinking about how I wanted to approach this film, Polgasari, I really considered just not talking about any of the story behind the production and not getting into any cultural context, not exploring any deeper analysis or interpretation of the possible themes, because 
when you are talking about stuff that is this complicated and is this political, I feel like it's so easy to get something wrong and rub people the wrong way. And then as you were saying, there's the added dimension in this instance of I'm talking about the politics of a culture that I'm not even a part of. And it really gets into a territory where I have a lot of discomfort around expressing my opinions. And frankly, the fear of offending someone has been enough to prevent me from getting into similar topics in the past. And I know you, George, aren't necessarily shy about diving into history and sensitive topics. You've done it on episodes about Shin Gojira, Dr. Strangelove, and most recently uh, La Llorona. So I kind of just wanted to get your perspective on this. Are these things that you worry about when you're doing an episode like this on your show? Um, has there ever been anything you weren't willing to talk about? Just sort of your general experience sure. on sh um, your show with this type of stuff. I, I do struggle with it. I usually wind up uh, just going for it <laughs> because <laughs> a lot of the time, well, first of all, a lot of the time we're talking about something that's at least American in context. Right. It's not always the case, like La Llorona. Um, but even then, that's it's a little more uh cut and dry in terms of like the the La Llorona one is about a genocide, and so I don't mm -hmm. necessarily feel as bad being like I don't think you should have done that, <laughs> genociders. Right. <laughs> Um, but in terms of stuff like the Dr. Strangelove episode, um, I do kind of let my politics bleed into the way that I approach stuff because I'm a pretty progressive person and I don't basically when I, when I was like, uh, do I feel comfortable talking about this stuff and, and possibly, um, offending someone who's maybe a little more conservative and ultimately you have to think about the kind of people that you want to surround yourself with mm -hmm. and, I was like, I would rather have an audience of like-minded people who are maybe a little bit smaller right. um, than have to really uh, censor myself and have to worry about that sort of thing. Because, you know, that's the whole beauty of being independent and being a little smaller is that I mm -hmm. can say what I think. And um, if that can influence people to maybe consider a, a take that they hadn't previously... um. You know, I think I'm all for that. The things that really give me a little more pause than necessarily politics is bringing up some of the bad stuff that directors and producers and actors have done. Yeah. Because you, th when we're talking about a movie, it is because the person who came on the show loves that movie. Mm -hmm. And so when someone who loves Alfred Hitchcock comes on the show, <laughs> and then all of a sudden I start talking about how terribly he treated the women who starred in his movies, despite the right. fact that he absolutely made incredible films, he treated the women in them like crap. And mm -hmm. that's just a fact. But if you walk up to someone who is generously donating their time to you, and you're like, by the way, the guy who made this movie you want to talk about, he's an asshole. <laughs> like, it, it's... It can be hard not to feel like that's an attack on you. Right. Um, because, and so, you know, sometimes I do struggle with that, but I also tend to think that, um, um, if, if they're coming on the show, they probably have some idea of this person's history. And, mm -hmm. uh, if I can, I, I try and communicate the fact that I still can enjoy the movie while, while not, uh, condoning everything that the person has done. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, it kind of just becomes at some point you have to trust your audience to be able to take what you're saying, uh, as at face value and, and know that you're trying your best. And, uh, that's kind of it really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And really, I guess 
all of this talk thus far has really just been kind of a huge disclaimer. It's sort of <laughs> my way of pre-apologizing in case either of us just does get something wildly wrong about this film or the context in which it was produced. Um, I don't, I hope, hopefully we won't. Um, we both sincerely try our best for that never to be the case, but as the saying goes, nobody's perfect. Nobody's nerfect, even. Yep. <laughs> and so here is the part. This one, this episode's going to require quite a bit of background. So there's going to be a lot of me just saying things. And I hope you guys and George in particular can just bear with me because I promise it, it is, uh, relevant and it is going somewhere. Um, this was one of those ones when I was like really digging into it. It was kind of like, when do I start? And when do I stop? Yeah. Because yeah. It, it really, it can be difficult to be like, how far? Cause obviously all of human history stacks, it builds on right. it on itself. And so in the La Llorona episode, when I'm trying to talk about like the things that led up to the genocide, I'm like, I'm already 80 years back talking <laughs> about like uh, the United Fruit Company and the U.S. interventionism in Central and South America, like, mm -hmm. and how that led to the first Guatemalan civil war. And like, it, it, it can really kind of get away from you, especially yeah, when you are I mean, nervous about offending someone. You're like, I'm trying to do as much research as possible and really present the context that led me to this train of thought. And, um, and, uh, you know, covering your, covering your own butt can sometimes bite it instead. Yeah. And that one's kind of similar because it's, it's kind of like, okay, well, I, I'm going back 80 years, but do I need to get into like Spanish colonialism <laughs> in the area? Because that also plays a part. Right. Are we going to go back to the days of Columbus? Like, when do you, <laughs> when do you say enough is enough? Right. Right. And so, like I said, we got to talk about not only some of the history of the Korean peninsula, but then with this one, we also have to talk about the story of how director Shin Sang Ok <laughs> ended up in North Korea filming a giant monster movie. Hell yeah, double And I'm history. also going to pre-apologize for both of us getting any of the pronunciations of names wrong. I, you don't speak Korean, do you, nope. George? Okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't either. <laughs> so we apologize for any of that. Um, and so, yeah, it's just. It's really hard to give an accurate and fairly balanced distillation of events, but I'm going to try my best. So from 1910 until 1945, Korea had been under imperial Japanese rule. And so it did not have a legitimate internationally recognized government once the Japanese occupation ended with the end of World War II. So after the Japanese surrender in 1945, the peninsula was divided in half along the 38th parallel with the northern half occupied by the Soviet Union and the southern half occupied by the United States. In December of 1945, roughly two months after the end of World War II, foreign ministers from the US, UK, and Soviet Union met in Moscow to discuss a variety of topics, which included a plan for what to do about the Korean Peninsula. They decided that Korea would be administered by a US-Soviet Joint Commission, with the goal of granting Korea its independence within five years. But by 1948, it became obvious that this commission wasn't really getting anything done, and two separate nations were officially established on the peninsula. The Republic of Korea, which we in the U.S. call South Korea, led by U.S.-backed President Syngman Rhee, and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, which we in the U.S. call North Korea, 
led by Soviet-backed Premier Kim Il-sung. The next two years saw a number of skirmishes in the South, mostly instigated by communist insurgents, before war officially broke out between the two sides on June 25th, 1950. And, of course, a tale as old as time, the United States and Soviet Union got involved. What? (laughs) And the Korean War became one of the many proxy wars between the U.S. and Soviet Union during the Cold War. And I actually looked this up because I had assumed that this would have been the first proxy war between the U.S. and Soviet Union to start after World War II, but this was actually like the sixth or seventh. <laughs> so, yeah. Fun fact right there. Um, <laughs> and so then, the, you know, the Korean War ended in an armistice agreement in 1953, although there never has been an official peace treaty, and uh, the two nations are still separated by a heavily armed border. The known joint security as, area. Yeah. The demilitarized zone or DMZ or joint security area. Another good movie. Yeah. And both nations were plagued by inner turmoil in the decades that followed. Um, South Korea went through a series of autocratic leaders, military coups, as we were talking about earlier, and oppressive regimes until the late 1990s. And then the North Korean government, although initially Marxist-Leninist in character, uh, became increasingly insular and nationalistic resulting in the formation of a new state ideology known as Juche and a dynastic succession of power for the male descendants of Kim Il-sung. And the first such descendant, Kim Il-sung's oldest son, Kim Jong-il, is pretty much the key figure in all of this because in 1978, Kim Jong-il allegedly orchestrated the kidnapping of acclaimed South Korean director Shin Sang-ok and Shin's ex-wife, actress Che Yun-hee in an effort to advance the North Korean film industry and earn recognition for North Korean cinema at the international level. And so this is kind of where things get complicated and controversial. So if you have heard anything about Polgasari, you've probably just heard that it was a North Korean monster movie directed by a South Korean filmmaker who was abducted by Kim Jong-il. And that is the prevailing narrative, at least in the U.S. But it's one of those things that the more you dig into it, really the less cut and dry it becomes. So, George, did you end up doing much digging into this whole story of Shin Sang-ok and Che Yun-hee's abduction? Uh, no, I wound up getting uh, caught up <laughs> in Kim Jong-il's On the Art of Cinema instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I, the common version of this story goes like this. Um, in 1978, Che Yun-hee was lured to Hong Kong, believing that she would be offered the opportunity to direct a film. There, she was abducted and taken to North Korea. And six months later, Shin Sang-ok was also abducted in Hong Kong while searching for Che. The two were kept separate for five years in North Korea, neither of them knowing that the other had been abducted. Che was kept in a luxury uh, building luxury accommodations known as building number one and she spent her days studying the writings of kim il-sung and at night kim jong-il would take her to various social gatherings and performances like movies operas etc shin on the other hand was held in a prison camp after two unsuccessful escape attempts eventually shin began to show regrets for having tried to escape 
and began writing letters to Kim Jong-il expressing a desire to direct films that would glorify North Korea. Shin was released from prison, and in 1983 with Che, um, in 1983 he was reunited with Che at a party hosted by Kim Jong-il. That was the first time they had seen each other. That was the first time they were even aware that the other was in North Korea. Wow, crazy small <laughs> world. Imagine you guys yeah. are both here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, from then on, they were forced to watch and critique four films a day selected from <laughs> Kim Jong-il's personal collection, which reportedly consisted of over 15,000 films. And yeah, we I should also mention that he is a huge cinephile. Um, the book that George was talking about. Uh, on the art of the cinema is like almost 500 pages long. <laughs> it's not short, um, that's for sure. That guy needs an editor, I'll tell you what. It honestly, the book itself is not so insanely terrible. It's, a lot of it is pretty self explanatory, but my God, the guy can ramble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I read not as much of it as you did, and I got the, uh, I got the same impression. <laughs> I so, guess when yeah. everyone's afraid to tell you no, you probably <laughs> don't true. get a lot of cuts. Um, so after that, you know, Kim, you know, he makes Che and Shin watch and critique films. And eventually he tells them that he wants Shin to direct a film and enter it into an international film festival. And over the next two years, Shin and Che produce six films, the last of which was Polgasari, which is reportedly the most expensive North Korean film ever made. But then in 1986... Kim allowed them to travel to Vienna under the guise of securing funding for an upcoming film about Genghis Khan. And while there, Che and Shin escaped to the U.S. Embassy building seeking asylum. Uh, I've been talking for a long time, <laughs> but I promise, folks, we're getting towards the end. How are you holding up, George? Hey, I think it's fascinating. Great. Um, yeah, and so that's pretty much the generally accepted story of how all of this went down. And Westerners and... Americans in particularly are willing to accept that story at face value because anytime a crazy story about North Korean leadership hits the papers, we just kind of eat that shit up without questioning it. Um, no matter how insane it sounds. I remember one a few years ago claiming that North Korea was saying that they had discovered a cave where real live unicorns lived, <laughs> but that's just one of the like many examples of ridiculous reports that really don't hold up to any level of scrutiny that Western news outlets just run with, and Western readers are just all too willing to believe. Yeah, you know, I think that it's it's really important to remember that there are culture wars happening, even if Mm -hmm. there aren't real wars happening. And with stuff like Russia and with China and with North Korea, this is not to say that they don't have issues. There mm-hmm. are lots of real human rights violations happening in these places, but there are also a lot of stories that get a foothold here that are pretty clearly bullshit. <laughs> and, you know, every people are so willing to believe it because they're so built up as sort of the enemy mm-hmm. in, in media, in, in, you know, your Red Dawns and, and stuff right. like that. And it, it does sort of make it difficult to react to the real things because it's when you when something intense and real does happen you know people go oh that's just china or oh that's just north korea and it's like well this is this is something that should be addressed but 
you're you're so uh, preoccupied with thoughts of unicorn caves <laughs> that um i don't know it it, it 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 frustrates me a little bit yeah no i totally get that and i think also with that sort of thing it really dehumanizes the people that live there that aren't yeah. the government right it sort of makes them seem like they are just like unnaturally stupid somehow <laughs> because they are willing to believe in unicorns and so you know once you dehumanize these people that's when a lot of people feel like it's okay anytime there's some saber rattling going on from North Korea. A lot of, I see a lot of comments on social media, which I know is not the best place to look, but they're that basically amount to like, oh, we should just fucking glass North Korea and turn it into a parking lot, Ugh. which is just disgusting. <laughs> yeah, abhorrent and disgusting. Um, and there's like another dimension to North Korea in particular because South Korea is such a close ally of the United States. Right. And on top of that, Americans are really bad at history and really bad about knowing anything about countries that aren't the United States. And so all of that. Sure. Leads- well, plus the economical difference as well. The fact that it is, uh, in theory, a communist country. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to capitalistic. And all of that leads to this thing where if you are American and you say anything other than North Korea is 100% the bad guy all the time and everything they do is pure evil and South Korea is unquestionably right in all circumstances. Well, you're not really likely to get a positive reaction. Um, <laughs> we're going down together, Chris. Yeah. And this is, this specifically was the part of the history that I was most hesitant to talk about <laughs> because it's contrary to a lot of the preconceived notions that Americans have about North and South Korea. So am I saying that the North Korean government is simply the victim of an American smear campaign and that they don't do anything wrong? Absolutely not. But what I am saying is that the facts in this particular case do raise some questions about whether or not the generally accepted version of this story is how it actually happened. Um, There is a whole-ass documentary called The Lover and the Despot about the abduction of Shin and Che, if you really want to get into all the nitty-gritty details of the case. And even in that film, which is highly sympathetic to Shin and Che and does not ever question whether or not their version of events is true, there are still plenty of things in that doc that cast doubt on their story. Are they in the documentary? So she is, but he had passed away by that time. I think he died in 2006, and this documentary, I think, is maybe from 2016. Mm -hmm. So she's in it, but he is not. So, yeah, I mean, to give you a brief overview, the first thing you really need to know is that Shin Sang-ok was undoubtedly a man who loved filmmaking. Uh, He was the rare type of filmmaker who was not only extremely prolific, he directed like 87 films from 1952 to 1994, but he was also highly respected as a master of the craft. The best like analogous figure I can kind of think of would maybe be like a John Ford. I don't really know. Um, So he started his own production company, Shin Films, in 1960. Um, And the second thing you really need to know is that in the decades after the Korean War, the South went through a lot of political turmoil. So the first president of South Korea, Syngman Rhee, was extremely anti-communist, extremely pro-American, 
and extremely authoritarian. Authoritarian, And America was very pro him as well. Yes. And he was not at all popular during his first term as president um, from 1948 to 1952 and probably would not have been reelected had he not ordered a mass arrest of opposition <laughs> leaders in 1952. When Rhee was reelected in 1956, he removed presidential term limits so that he could serve as the president of South Korea basically until he died, was the plan. Um, but he was finally forced to resign in 1960 after a popular demonstration known as the April Revolution. Rhee was replaced by the democratically elected Yun Po Soon, who served as president from August 1960 until May 1961, when he was deposed in a military coup led by Park Chung-hee, who would serve as president of South Korea until his assassination by a member of the Korean Central Intelligence Agency in 1979, which is the events depicted in The Man Standing Next that we were talking about earlier. Right. So why is this relevant to Shin Sang-ok? Well, because this entire time that all of this stuff is going on, he was working as a film director. He was an artist under these repressive regimes. Um, and in 1959, he was asked by the government to direct a propaganda film about the life of Syngman Rhee. Shin accepted that offer, and the payment he received for uh, Syngman Rhee and the Independence Movement, which is the title of that film, that payment helped him establish his own production company. And when Pak Chung-hee became president, he and Shin ended up developing a very close friendship. Uh, Shin voluntarily directed a film meant to propagate Pak's agricultural policies in 1963 titled Rice. Um, but Shin became perhaps maybe a bit too comfortable with their relationship, and he would repeatedly push the boundaries of what was acceptable under the increasingly strict censorship guidelines of the Pak regime. And in 1975, uh, Shin announced that he intended to make a movie about the kidnapping of Kim Dae-yong by Pak's KCIA, and the South Korean government revoked Shin Film's certificate. And with that, Shin was effectively barred from making any films in South Korea, although he wow. did manage to direct one film in 1976 for another Korean production house. And at this point, it really shouldn't be too difficult to connect the dots for an alternative <laughs> explanation for how Shin Sang-ok ended up in North Korea, it is entirely possible that Shin, who up until this point had averaged directing three films a year, and who was no stranger to working within the confines of an authoritarian regime, was maybe approached by DPRK agents with an opportunity to direct films again with uh, much higher budgets than he was working with in South Korea, and that Shin accepted this offer. And even... According to a former South Korean intelligence agent that was interviewed in The Lover and the Despot, that was the prevailing theory for a lot of South Korean citizens at the time. Um, many believed that Shin went to North Korea willingly and that Che's abduction was orchestrated on Shin's behalf. Um, we'll probably never really know what happened, and there's a lot of supporting evidence for both sides that I just didn't have time to go over, but I uh, do think it's kind of necessary to have some understanding of this stuff when talking about Pulgasari. Uh, so you still with us, George? Yeah, do your own research, man. <laughs> <laughs> Look up the facts. So yeah, uh, like I said, I know that was a lot of stuff, 
a lot of rambling, but I think it will all be germane to our discussion later if yeah, we I want mean, to plus, analyze also, the themes of this film. That's a, a great story. What an interesting, <laughs> what an interesting piece of history. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, so let's finally get into <laughs> what this movie actually is. And George, if you would be so kind as to give my vocal cords a rest and kick us off. How does this movie start? Sure. So uh, you got well. So it, it, this is actually a period piece, which is yes. pretty cool in and of itself. Um, it takes place in the, I think like the nine hundreds, um, something like that. Yeah the the Goryeo dynasty, and um, basically there's a king who is you know do, he's a king, he's a, a despot, he's ruling everyone he's got an iron fist mm-hmm. iron used very deliberately <laughs> um and you know everyone is is starving and uh it, basically it opens up with people working and sort of discovering bandits in their area who are sort of looking to maybe kick off some kind of revolution and overthrow this king mm-hmm. i i i like that even like right at the beginning of this that it's very like you know, you can kind of see how the philosophy <laughs> that they're trying to communicate is very uh, explicitly text, like, give me some water. No, not until the older people have had some. Father, take a break. No, not until the work is done. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, that uh, Juche uh, philosophy that you were talking about, that is the prevailing mode of thought in North Korea, mm-hmm. is is very explicitly talked about in... The, that book that I was talking about, the uh, the art of cinema, mm-hmm. and uh, basically Kim Jong Il, he's his whole thing is that uh, film needs to communicate a story, or it needs to communicate an ideal in order to have merit. Um, and the the idea of this sort of uh, the way that they have sort of become so nationalistic and 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 less socialistic was mm-hmm. a very sort of gradual movement. Right. You know, when this movie came out in the mid 80s, but it wasn't really until the 90s that it, it the, the nationalism in, in North Korea started really, really taking off to, to the extent that we know it today. Mm-hmm. And so at the beginning of this movie, it is very socialistic. It's very, you know, the everyone is working and, and you know, trying to get the crops together. And, and it's very like uh, worker class oriented um, people who feel that they're being oppressed are taking to the forest in order to create this revolution. Um, you know, you can kind of see why Kim Jong Il would be um, producing this film in order to communicate these ideas of Juche. Yeah, totally. And it really does seem like, like you said, even from the beginning and throughout the rest of the film, it really does just seem like a vehicle to communicate a theme because I think. I think some of the characters have names. <laughs> Probably, I can't really tell you what any of their names are. They're right. really just sort of like archetypes that yeah, serve a lot the of function. Father, cousin, yeah. uncle, that sort of thing. Local blacksmith, <laughs> rebel guerrilla leader hiding out in the mountains. Right. So, yeah, at a certain point, this uh, president decides that he needs to confiscate all of the iron in this small village in which the story takes place. So he sends in his jackbooted thugs and he doesn't just take iron of like the weapons of the villagers, but he also takes like pots that they use for cooking (laughs) tools they would use to till the soil and whatnot. So he pretty much has sentenced them to death. 
by taking all of their iron just so that he can, I guess, build armor and weapons for his military. Well, I think he also doesn't want them outfitting the rebels. Right. I think that, yeah, that's a component to it as well. So, because the, the blacksmith, he, his, he wanted his daughter to like marry the head rebel. Um, right. And, yeah, that's and right. so there's that kind of like romance plot line happening as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's like this one rebel guy that is, uh, leading a resistance in the mountains. I think, you know, they, they know he's in the area. They don't know exactly where he is. And they right. are, I don't think they're certain that the blacksmith is outfitting him or giving him tools. He just kind of outs himself to the uh, soldiers by leading a raid against them as they, well, they also uh, find a pile of weapons <laughs> that, that the guy was holding on to. Right. Where he was like, my friend asked me to hold on to these weapons. <laughs> and then the blacksmith was like, it's yours. I know it. And he's like, OK, you were right. And they just like hide it under a bunch of hay. <laughs> <laughs> And then the soldiers come through and they're like, what are all these weapons under the hay? And that's when things take a turn. Yeah. So they, uh, they imprison the blacksmith and, right. um, the leader of the rebels, as well as, I guess, his, uh, confidants and officers. They starve them, right? Just the blacksmith. J yeah. Just the blacksmith for whatever reason, even though, I mean, he really had like the least direct involvement in the whole thing. <laughs> He's like a 90 year old man. Yeah. So he's starving and his daughter throws him a rice ball from a distance into the the holding cell that he's in. And he uses this rice ball to make a little statue of a little mythical creature called Polgasari. What a cutie. And uh, that statue um, comes to life, I guess, with the spirit of the proletariat blacksmith imbued in it and uh, starts eating iron and growing, right? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of it. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's there's a few scenes of him being cute and tiny. Holy but boy, he, are there. <laughs> yeah, I really like it. Um, but, uh, you know, he starts eating and growing, and, and they, they start figuring it out, and, um, you know, they realize that much like the growing rebellious sentiment, that so he, so too... Do they have a weapon against this oppressive regime? Ah, yes. <laughs> um, so I think, I think the, uh, the government officials become aware of the existence of Polgasari. He's like, I don't know, toddler sized or maybe like six year old sized or something. They're going to execute the blacksmith, but, uh, Polgasari in intercepts the executioner's ass or axe with his mouth. Not, not the blacksmith, the, the rebel leader. Ah, that's who it was. Yeah, he intercepts the executioner's axe with his mouth, <laughs> takes a bite out of it. They start chasing him around. There's some uh, cheesy synth music and whatnot slapstick okay, comedy. That's I loved the score in this. It this the like electro synth that's happening <laughs> is it's, so bizarre. It's so weird. I it is thought so it was weird. so funny. It's really weird. It's very out of place in a movie taking place between 900 and 1300 BC or not BC. But nineteen hundred or uh, nine hundred and thirteen hundred, uh, to have this like electro synth score is very fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering. It's been a while since I've seen some of the later Godzilla movies in the Showa era, or right. even the '84 Godzilla. So I'm wondering if they were like, I can't think if there's synth music in those, and maybe they were copying that feel. 
Yeah. I don't really know where they got it from. I don't know. That was that's all them, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, what happens from here? Polgasari is he's out and about, um, doing his thing, doing his thing. I guess they at a certain point the villagers realize like, hey, we can't really fight the government, the the king and his army with our weapons, but what we can do is feed the weapons to Polgasari because as we feed him, he gets bigger, like you said. And Polgasari can defend us. Polgasari right. can storm the capital and get those get those fucking assholes that are <laughs> keeping us in shackles. And eat those shackles. Right. <laughs> um it's it, like you said, it's very clear that this is sort of a vehicle for uh the the message of it. Uh, you know, I I, right. I will say I think that it is fun. I think mm-hmm. that they are you know, as much as it is very much a vehicle you could say that about a thousand American movies as well. Oh, yeah. And- I mean, original Godzilla is very transparent <clears throat> that it's a vehicle for a message right. as well. And that's a great classic movie. Exactly. And so it can still be this very clear message where it's like, oh, it's this unending hunger for for the iron and, and for justice. And, and like, it's very clear what's happening. But I think that they're also doing it extremely effectively. I like getting to see him sort of grow and and how how it builds. And again, it does it does sort of tie in. Look, not to be like Kim Jong Il was really onto something, but but, <laughs> but wasn't book, he though? But wasn't he though? Because in the book, <laughs> he talks about how it's important to see like a revolutionary is not just born in one moment. Mm-hmm. That a revolutionary has to see the struggle and embody the struggle and. That it, it takes place over years and years and years, and that, you know, basically, the whole idea is to develop revolutionary consciousness, is what mm-hmm. he's saying. And this movie is trying to shape ideas through that lens, and I, I think that, you know, I, I think it's doing a pretty good job. <laughs> yeah. And one of the, like, the th- reason it's kind of so hard to talk about this movie in specific of, like, plot points and things like that. Is that even though it's like 90 minutes long, like not really a whole lot happens. You could kind of just sum it up by saying like villagers, monster, eats iron, gets bigger, (laughs) kills king. Like that's kind of what it is because the characters, they're pretty much just like cardboard cutouts. None of them really have personalities. So you can't really like talk about, oh, this interesting relationship between these two develops in this way because there's not really anything like that (laughs) in the movie. Right. Uh, it's kind of just them interacting with Polgasari, um, having some nice set pieces and some like pretty good battle scenes between yeah. Polgasari and the uh, Imperial or Royal Army guys. There's not a whole lot to it. No, it's not. I, I, uh, I did kind of lose my train of thought on the last thing. And so I, I, I picked it back up and I, I wanted to read this quote actually, basically yeah, go where, ahead. um, what, what I, when I was talking about how, you know, we, we do kind of see it, a revolutionary is not just born in one moment. He says this quote, um, the working class should be set in the forefront and that the process by which ordinary people acquire their world outlook and mature into revolutionaries should be shown in detail. It, it's, it's all about showing how it builds and how people can be pushed to the brinking point or pushed to the brink and the breaking point mm-hmm. and, and, and that this is sort of how a revolution begins is not just having a monster come out fully formed but having this he's very much a representative representative of the people he starts out as this cute little monster 
And as their oppression is felt, so too does his strength and rage and hunger for justice that I was talking about. And so um, I, I just think that it, it is very interesting that as far as execution for what Kim Jong-il was going for in terms of these uh, propaganda films, because it is ultimately propaganda in one way or another, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's at least succeeding. Yeah, I do think that that, that uh, quote you pulled is actually really salient. And even though that book came out before this, it does a better job of like distilling what this movie is than either of us have tried to do so far. Right. Yeah. Because that's really all it is. It's showing uh, what is could be seen as a people's revolution in sort of allegorical terms using this monster and the process by which that revolution comes to fruition. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there are like Probably a couple cool scenes we want to shout out. We do we do want to talk about the the suit because we <laughs> do love monster oh, suits and miniatures. Oh, I yeah. think Polgasari is actually like a really cool design. He's like it's elegant in its simplicity, mm-hmm. and the fact that he doesn't like actually really have any powers other than just being like a fucking hoss made out of iron <laughs> <laughs> that they can't do anything to. I think one of my favorite scenes is they try to set him on fire, but since he's made of iron, that just heats him up. Yeah. And then as the soldiers try to escape into a river, he's he his like superheated body, he walks into the river and just fucking boils the army men alive. Rough. I thought that was so badass. It's really intense and I mean, you know, like that that holds through. Like the when one of our hero guys goes to touch him later, like he, he's still hot and he burns his hand a little bit and you're like like this is it has coherence all the way through. This is a really good monster movie. I I love the design. Having yeah. this very cool like bull uh, it's it's not so much of the monster movies are very deliberately like a mutated creature or something right. and the idea of this being just a statue that comes to life um really lets them do some pretty interesting stuff with it hey kind of like another uh period piece kaiju film with a statue that comes to life sure is which you uh introduced me to and i enjoyed that movie very much yeah it was a good one but you know yeah like he he really does, like, even though this is, like, just some one-off North Korean monster movie propaganda piece, he really does have, like, a toyetic, striking, classic design in a mm-hmm. way that even some of the ones coming out of Toho really don't. Like, I mean, Gigan, like, what the fuck is he supposed to be? <laughs> All right, hey, let's not, let's not badmouth Gigan here. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, what is he supposed to be? He's a death chicken. <laughs> With a uh, circular saw in his Hell stomach. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know why you're acting like you don't get it. It sounds like you get it. <laughs> okay. M- Megalon, then. What's Or uh, destroy a... <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of tiny crabs joining up to become one giant crab monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It all makes perfect sense, Chris. I guess it... And actually, now, I, I had forgotten about this, but the guy that plays Polgasari is the guy that plays Godzilla. In Holy like the, sh- the first show era films, <laughs> I I completely forgot about that. So that's important. Obviously, the acting for Polgasari is on point. Yeah, um, I love when the king is like, "We're gonna exercise the blacksmith right out of Polgasari." <laughs> <laughs> that really that cracked me up. That that was how they're doing it because they can't do anything to him, and so they right. they turn to they resort to other means, 
and they they're like, "There's a an exorcist in the village. Go get her, and we'll uh, take care of this blacksmith once and for all." Which again kind of reminds me of the opening scene and some other scenes in Daimajin. Yeah. Um, kind of wonder if they took some inspiration from that because this doesn't. I mean, even though it has a giant monster in it. I mean, it's not really that similar to Godzilla. Right. Obviously, they were would have been informed by Godzilla because he's the most popular giant monster. But in terms of storytelling and things like that, I don't know. Much closer to Daimajin than Godzilla, for sure. And yeah, I mean, there's a scene where the king makes a cannon, tries to kill Two. Polgasari. Two yeah, cannons. Multiple cannons. <laughs> All that does is piss Polgasari off. and. uh I th- I think that's ca- isn't that during like the climactic battle? Yeah, well, cause, so uh, he like he does die. The like sort the exorcism of. does work, <laughs> <laughs> and the the blacksmith's daughter like again very much sort of like okay, what does this mean in terms of the allegory? There's this idea of like sacrificing yourself for the good of everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, Juche in particular is about self-reliance right. and that that's really what differentiates korean communist thought from uh marxist stalinist communist mm. thought is this uh sort of idea of self-reliance and that um it's a, it's on the people to support the state basically and this idea and obviously a lot of that involves having to sacrifice for the good of the many uh and that's very much on display in this movie you know not only does the blacksmith's daughter like cut her arm open to try and bring back uh, Polgasari, which it, it which does work, and that's how he mm-hmm. sort of gets revitalized for this final climactic battle. Can't fucking stop him. Can't fucking stop him. But uh, also, I mean, we can get to this in a little bit. But there is another sacrifice that um, comes again, and it is very much repre- uh, sort of part and parcel of the same thing. Yeah, I mean, we, you can go ahead and get into that if you want to, because I mean, other than that, there's really not a whole much, whole lot worth discussing. I mean, because it's sure. kind of just the end of the movie is kind of just battles other than that and really (laughs) if people want to see that they should just go watch it because they'll i mean that's better than us explaining it to them so yeah Yeah. go ahead and touch on that final sacrifice yeah so also after polgasari beats the the army the problem becomes now that he is this giant monster who is still hungry for iron Mm -hmm. um and that he's still taking all of their um their tools and, and their pots and pans and everything and the people are happy to give it to him because he saved them, but the blacksmith's daughter basically realizes that this can't continue, and so she hides inside a bell, which is made of iron, mm-hmm. and Polgasari comes and eats her in the bell, and this sort of, because she's like the daughter of the blacksmith and also revitalized him and you know, uh, for one reason or another, consuming the blacksmith's daughter <laughs> uh, makes Polgasari uh, implode, for lack of a better word. He turns mm-hmm. to stone and he crumbles. Um, and there is uh, the dead, crying blacksmith's daughter lying among the rubble. Um, and uh, she sacrificed herself again, this time for good. Yeah. And I mean, that's Polgasari for you. Um, you do get a little baby Pogasari again. Yeah. At the very end. They know what the audience wants and they brought him back. Yeah. Um, one thing that I did think was interesting was to kind of go hand in hand with your idea of uh, there are kind of two sides to the story of the director 
possibly being kidnapped or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, 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 you can kind of interpret this in in multiple ways that yeah, I, I so think is pretty interesting. This is one of the things I really wanted to get into with you is just the multiple interpretations that you could bring to this movie, which is kind yeah. of surprising considering, you know, it's kind of just like this weird one-off monster movie from North Korea. But I remembered that after you watched this one for the first time, you made a comment about this being a veiled critique of Kim Jong-il. Right. And so why don't you tell us a little bit more about that specific interpretation. Yeah. The, well, so I thought it was interesting that, well, I was one of the people who just kind of accepted the story at face value. Mm-hmm. And, and so with that sort of thought, I was like, the idea that Paul Gasari, who is very much representative of the People's Revolution and ultimately sort of this like glorious leader and, and the rev, and you know, that's, that's all tied together. Um, Ultimately, he is the thing that is still destroying them. Mm-hmm. Their their hero has become the oppressor ag- again. They're in the exact same spot that they were, uh, except that now more people had died, um, and they were still losing their weapons and tools and 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 pots and pans. And um, the idea that that this wasn't going to be the thing to save you, um, I just think it was the kind of thing where maybe if you were looking for it, you could see that. But it, it's not necessarily the kind of thing that comes through if you're not specifically looking for it to mm-hmm. be a critique. Um, I just thought that it was it was really fascinating that the the way that the ending gives it a little more depth than you might expect from just a straight up propaganda piece. Yeah, and I know that since you watched it the first time and kind of came to that initial conclusion, you've obviously since done some deep diving into some of the background, read a lot of. Uh, Kim Jong Il's <laughs> writings on film theory. So I'm curious to know if your thoughts on that interpretation have changed at all. You know, I think that what it ultimately comes down to for me is that he does kind of feel like someone caught between two worlds. And I think I am kind of inclined to believe that he did make this movie willingly, but I also think that he maybe wasn't quite as indoctrinated into Juche. Mm-hmm. And so. I think that maybe he leaves people a little bit of an out. There is, again, in uh, The Art of the Cinema, it is very much about how important it is to see the political themes and everything um, treated correctly and put on screen because not everybody is in revolutions all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. And... The way to develop class consciousness, if you're not currently being oppressed or in the middle of a, a battle, um, is by seeing it depicted in art. Right. And this, this sort, I mean, look, I don't think it's right for anyone to be completely indoctrinated into something. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I think that the idea that, um, this director did kind of come to it, maybe, maybe willingly, maybe not entirely willingly, you know, he was kind of put into a difficult position. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that maybe it is about the revolution and he's happy to make it for, for Kim, but maybe he feels like there's a little something of his own message that he's trying to sneak in at the end as well. Yeah. I think, yeah, this is, it's, that's definitely the most common interpretation of the film that I've seen, that it's sort of a veiled criticism of Kim Jong-il. And I think it's, it's definitely one that can be argued without stretching too much. Like the elements are there. But it's not one that I would really agree with for a few reasons. Um, 
first, I think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier and sort of plays off the trope of, oh, those crazy North Koreans. Right. Because I think in order to believe that theory that Shin Sang-ok was critiquing Kim Jong-il under his nose, you kind of have to believe that Kim Jong-il was so insane that he would kidnap a film director from South Korea, give him millions of dollars to produce a giant monster movie, and then not oversee the film's production or have any input as to the contents of the (laughs) film, and that he would then release that film to international audiences. And that just, like, it really just sounds far-fetched to me. Especially someone who is as wrapped up in film as Kim Jong-il was. I mean, not, not only did he write this book about film theory, but like, you know, in the book, he's constantly making reference to, uh, to other, <laughs> to other movies and stuff. And he's like, this is a really good example of what I'm talking about. And so finally I looked it up and of course it was fucking produced by Kim Jong-il. <laughs> so like, oh, it all begins to come together. But basically the point is, is that this was not the first film he was producing. It's not the first time that he had thought about movies and how they can talk and, and, convey a message to people. I mean, I, I agree that it does kind of uh, require a pretty negative opinion of their intelligence. Yeah, because like you could make the argument that he was just too dumb and didn't pick up on the subtext, except for that, as you said, he wrote a nearly 500-page book that is almost exclusively about subtext in filmmaking. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so uh, another reason like that I don't really subscribe to that interpretation is that, you know, based on some of the things I was saying earlier, Shin had shown no qualms about producing propaganda <laughs> films in the past. Right. Um, part of the argument for that interpretation of the film is that Pulgasari is sort of an act of rebellion or protest by Shin, but given his past, I'm not so sure that's the case because he didn't do that under either of the other authoritarian regimes where he made films for them. Yeah. Um, and another reason uh, that <laughs> I don't really, I'm sorry to shit on this theory that you put forward, no. but uh, is that there is actually an English language remake of Paul Gasari called Galgameth that came out in 1994 that Shin Sang wrote the script for. And in Galgameth, the parts of the film that support this theory are completely absent. Wow. And that to me says that those aspects of Paul Gasari are saying something other than just like Kim Jong-il bad, because if anything, you'd expect Shin to double down on the critique of the DPRK once he had full artistic freedom. But pretty much all of the political stuff is taken out of Galgameth, and it's kind of uh, the guy that brings Galgameth to life is like a prince. So he's royalty also, fighting against some other royalty dickhead that took over (laughs) his throne or whatever. All right, throw this theory in the trash. <laughs> I'm done with it. Yeah, like I said, I'm certainly not trying to dump on anyone that reads the film in this way. And I mean, if you fully subscribe to the death of the author, there's not really any reason that you couldn't read the film this way. Like I yeah. said, it's not a stretch at all to right. to have that reading. Um, but I guess, do you have any other alternative interpretations to put forward for Paul Gasari? Um, I just... I think that it's it's very interesting because there is kind of this adoration of Pulgasari that happens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was sort of when Kim Jong-il was starting to shift 
into uh, Juche started shifting from love of socialism to love of country and the leader um, mm-hmm. became they call it our style of socialism and um, it's not quite so dogmatic in the application of communism uh, because as they say you need to take into account the different cultures that Marxism is based on mm-hmm. European experience that Leninism is based on Russian experience and that Juche is based on Korean experience and you know I think on some level. That makes it very difficult for us to um to come to it and maybe necessarily understand it as much as someone who has been immersed in something like that for right. their entire life. I think that there is that ending is real is just really interesting to me that she does ultimately have to sacrifice herself to stop Pulgasari. You know, there's a lot. I I don't know. I, it's it's the kind of movie that I you have to th- sit with and that the, it is open to interpretation that you can kind of chew on it a little bit. And um, I just think that's great. Yeah. So I have sat with this one and I have chewed <laughs> on it a little bit because I have been a fan of this movie for a while. So I've had much more time to kind of parse that out and sort right. of like... Both, te- both times I watched this were this year. Yeah. Like within the past probably like month and a half or something, right? right? Something like that. Yeah. So one of the things, one interpretation, like we were talking about uh, earlier, the transition to Juche away from Marxist-Leninism... It was a gradual process, and so in the tra- in that transitional period, uh, the North Korean government still espoused ideas that were Marxist-Leninist in character. Right, and like I don't want to get too deep into Marxist-Leninist thought because I'm not the guy to do that. I'm far from being an expert on that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So just basically, I guess for the listeners out there, consider a lot of what I'm about to say as the sort of explain like I'm five version <laughs> of this. Um, but it is possible that the monster Pulgasari is meant to be representative of Lenin's belief that capitalism is helpful for working people, at least at the beginning of the transition from feudalism to capitalism. Right. Because it enables them to escape what he called a feudal torpor. And he also believed that the contradictions that arise from capitalism would rouse working people to class consciousness, Mm. which would eventually create the material conditions necessary to move from capitalism to socialism. And again, this is like the elevator pitch version of all this, but it's clear that the people depicted in the film are peasants living in a feudal society. So you could say, I guess that Polgasari is capitalism. Hmm. He rouses the peasants, allows them to escape their feudal torpor, as Lenin would put it, and ultimately becomes imperialist when it must invade other countries to sustain itself with their resources. The people realize this, they destroy Polgasari, resulting in a new society that is neither feudal nor capitalist, where the workers are no longer oppressed. Your thoughts? I love that. I really love that. I think it's great. Uh, you know, I've recently read a really, really interesting review of the Michael Mann movie Thief, hmm. um, where there is sort of this, uh, you know, when he, when Leo pitches um, to Frank, you know, he says, you want to go to work for me directly. You'll pull down contact scores all over the country. You don't look, you don't case, you don't do nothing no more. We point you to a score. We tell you what's in there. When we tell you it's there, it's there. These are laid out scores. And he does the job 
he he's really he's interested in it and and he is sort of suckered into this capitalist thing he's he's this he he is the working man mm-hmm. frank um and he he gets suckered into this but ultimately at the end when frank or when leo is like he he betrays him he says uh join a labor union <laughs> and and frank pulls out his weapon and he says i'm wearing it and fucking great scene yeah it's a fucking great scene and i think very much like polgasari this this sort of little guy using capitalism and and using that to get the leg up but then ultimately having to turn on it when it turns on him is just such an interesting narrative and an important communique i think as someone who Mm -hmm. is not exactly a fan of capitalism um in case you couldn't tell from everything (laughs) i've been saying this entire podcast um i just that's a great theory i I think that it's a a great interpretation i like it a lot um that's probably what i'm gonna consider it going forward well i have a few more so not so fast but i I will say the the one thing you do not want to do in terms of the movie thief is rouse to class consciousness a guy that built like a five foot blowtorch (laughs) so yeah bad call on that one yeah um so one of my other things that i was thinking about with this movie is that maybe uh paul gasari symbolizes the inevitable fate of a revolution without the guidance of a great leader um so one of the key ways another key way in which juche differs from marxist leninism is the idea that popular masses are doomed to failure in their revolutionary movement without a great leader. So this is like the complete opposite of Marxist-Leninism. They are totally against the great man theory. They're all about the people. Right. But with Juche, they believe that you need a great leader to uh, sort of lead the masses. And this is a theme that is seen time and time again in earlier North Korean films that also feature medieval rebellions that, although those rebellions are just and righteous in their intentions, they're ultimately doomed to fail because they had no great leader. Um, the revolutionary, revolutionary spirit of the people will live on, as the baby Polgasari does at the end of the film, mm. but the people will never be able to truly overcome their oppressors without a great leader. So that's that's another thing I was thinking. What are your thoughts on that one? I like that one too. Um I think that uh, maybe you could be like, well, there are potential great leaders there. You know, it's it's a very much a male dominated culture mm-hmm. in Korea. And so, you know, I, I maybe me being like, well, the blacksmith's daughter could have been <laughs> could have been the great leader. Like <laughs> they probably wouldn't have right made that the case in there, but um I don't know. I may, uh, uh, I could see it. I think that the capitalism one fits a little better for mm-hmm. for my taste. Maybe it's just because I am more intrigued by that being the the idea. Right. But but um, yeah, I still think it, it holds a lot of water. Yeah. So normal. This one, like normally, I would say, okay, like that's good and everything, but it requires too much knowledge of Juche and Marxist Leninism. Normally, that's what I would say. But then the only thing that makes me think that it, it it's possibly the intended meaning is that, you know, his theories on filmmaking and how he definitely would want to imbue like specific things about Juche in filmmaking. But I right. agree, it's definitely a uh, less well thought out interpretation, we'll say. Yeah, I also think that um, 
the idea of the, that revolution is not it's not so focused in Juche either because of it, it kind of being kicked off on a little bit more of a materialistic level mm. um because it comes from the like taking of of their means of production which is very much the leninist marxist approach mm-hmm. juche another way that it differs um is that it's it's very much about uh it, or rather this will be easier to explain if i say that marxist leninism um considers that your thought is relative to your distance from the means of production mm-hmm. and uh juche says that the your distance from the means of production doesn't really have anything to do with it that man is completely independent um and and can choose to just sort of uh make the the correct choices eventually through this revolution and having the great leader and everything and because it does sort of stem from this production level where that's really sort of the impetus um i think that this might just be a little a little early in the development of juche for that to be the interpretation yeah I can agree with that because, I mean, I think it was only a few years prior where they said, like, hey, we are not Marxist-Leninist, we are Juche. Right, but and as, it's still, they right. still use a lot of the language of Marxist-Leninism as mm-hmm. they made that transfer. So Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. Um, I think final interpretation is that maybe Paul Gasari is just meant to extol the virtues of self-reliance, uh, mm-hmm. which, as we've talked about, I mean, sometimes Juche is just translated as self-reliance um, because it's one of the central concepts. Uh, right. So as you were kind of touching on before, in Juche thought, man is the master of his own destiny, and only by becoming self-reliant can a nation achieve true socialism. And right. through this lens, you could see Polgasari as just sort of a stand-in for any number of things, whether it's dependence on others in sort of an abstract sense, or possibly symbolic of aid and assistance that North Korea was receiving from the Soviet Union or China Mm -hmm. that at first appears to be helpful, but ultimately becomes a hindrance when the people become dependent on it. How does that strike you? (sighs) Yeah, see, this is sort of um, where I start to struggle a little bit, because unfortunately, uh Juche does lend itself to abuses of power. Um it's very easy for Democratic or the Democratic Republic of Korea to say things like, We don't have enough food to eat because you are not good enough citizens. Um and that self reliance um can really be used to put the onus back on the people in a way that uh I don't necessarily care for. And you know, I think that I, I think you know when you interpret it as sort of this like the vagary of dependence on others. Um, I think that it, you could probably apply that to it. It's a little, it's a little vague to really, you know, because he is so explicit in in his sort of examination of subtext um, mm-hmm. and the specificity of themes. I'm not sure that that would be something he would go for. You know, right. um, but uh, I, I do think that um, it's possible that that's what they're going for, certainly. Yeah, possible. So it sounds like probably first one was the winner. And I, I agree. I feel like that one is the one that is best supported by I do like the that film. second one, too, though. I, I think that there is a lot to it. Yeah. 
I, I think there's probably other things that I'm not seeing just because I have not read all of the writings of Kim Jong-il and Kim Il-sung. And we're also on the other side of the world, you know? It, like yeah. we said, there's there's a certain level of remove where we're just n- never going to be able to pick up on every single piece of like cultural reference or whatever. Yeah. Um it's a really interesting movie as yes. We both said it's it's I think when I first watched it I kind of went into it with that attitude of lol North Korea like this is going to be so funny. And I kind of came out on the other side of like this is actually one of the better kaiju films that I've <laughs> ever seen at least in terms of what we we're talking about before like doing what it set out to do. Um right. The acting may not be that great but I try not to harp on things like that too much, especially when it comes to a country that doesn't really have a history of filmmaking. It's not really fair um, to do that. And I think it's impressive that they were able to achieve what they did when they're basically on an island. Um, before Shin Sang-ok came, they didn't wouldn't really have had anyone to turn to for advice on how to make films better. Right. And... um I mean, whether or not he was kidnapped, that is the reason he was wanted there by Kim Jong-il, because uh, he didn't have confidence in his own filmmakers to make a film that could be shown on the international stage and not be laughed at. Um, And he was hoping that Shin would be able to do that for him. So, yeah, it's just a really interesting film. Yeah. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think that um, because... I heard about this movie through people like yourself, and uh, I kind of came to it with a little, a little less trepidation or a little, a little bit of a higher bar, I guess. Uh, you know, I was expecting this movie to be at least decent, um, and uh, I was very happily met those expectations and more. I think that not only is it a fun monster movie, <laughs> I think that. It also has a lot going on in terms of the message, whether you agree with it or not. It has a lot going on in terms of interpretation, whether you agree with what we've said or not. Um, it has, this is a controversial opinion, even in front of you. I think that it is a much better and cuter baby monster than Minya. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, the, the monster designs are cool and uh, there's lots of, tearing down buildings. I mean, what do you want, people? Yeah. What do you want? Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, it's been a great discussion. I'm sure we could both go on for ages about this one, but I think at this point, I'm all Polgasari'd out. Wait, My voice we didn't is... have another hour extolling the virtues <laughs> of Marxist-Leninism instead? <laughs> well, if you want to, we, we definitely can. No, that's all right. I'll save it for another time. <laughs> um, I still feel like I have a lot more to say on this one, but my voice is getting strained at this point, as I'm sure yours is as well. So I guess let's just bring it on home. And sure. would you recommend this film? Why would you recommend it? And who would you recommend it to? Oh, man, I would recommend this movie in a heartbeat. I think even just as a historical oddity, it merits watching. The fact that it has such an interesting backstory that, it, you know, forces you to kind of reckon with your own biases as well. <laughs> Uh, I mean, that's just fascinating. And then the fact that it is a good and entertaining movie on top of that? Come on now. You can't really ask for much more. And um, I, yeah, I would recommend this to anyone with a passing interest in the history of film, in politics, 
in Korean politics in particular or Asian po- uh, Asian politics. You know, I just think that there's so much going on with this movie that it's it's hard for me to picture someone who can't get something out of it. Yeah, I definitely agree with all of that. Um, I would recommend it probably mostly to the type of people that I've already recommended it to, which would be <laughs> you and Dan from TYTD, people that aren't afraid of the silliness that's inherent in a kaiju movie. Um because, you know, it is a guy in a suit breaking miniature buildings. That's what I'm there for. Yeah, that is inherently kind of silly, but for the people that like it, that's kind of why they like it. Um, Yeah, I I always say that part of what I love about monster movies is that I I feel like it's such a perfect intersection of the fantastical elements of film that really let you lose yourself in another world, but also with the the seams of seeing how (laughs) it was made and, and like... There, there is truly nothing that brings me more joy than seeing the person inside of a monster suit. <laughs> um, it's, it's happened a couple times between the Gamera and the Godzilla series. There's a, I, I took a picture of the guy in the Rodan suit where like <laughs> his face is just like salami sealed against the neck of Rodan. And yeah. it's just so funny, but like looking at it and being like, look at these miniatures, how much work went into it, the detail. It's just so incredible, and you really don't get that in other genres. I mean, monster movies just really have something special going on there. You really don't. Um, I guess you could see, say that- Some sci-fi. Yeah. I guess you could say that you can see how the Polga sausage is made in this (laughs) one. (laughs) But I'll also say that the suit work and miniature work in this one is pretty much on par with anything out of Toho around the same time. I mean- Oh, yeah. You don't get to see the seams that much in this one, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's really good. I mean, the the miniatures are not as densely packed as they would be in like a Godzilla 84 because right. it takes place in feudal Korea, yeah. not Tokyo. <laughs> but they are very good. Um, there's a lot of fun scenes with Polgasari interacting with miniatures where he breaks down the uh, royal building. I think it's called the Greenhouse in right. North Korea. Blue House in South Korea. I could be wrong about that. Also, just when he's like a little little tiny Polgasari and he's splashing water at the... Or when he's in an even tinier Polgasari eating needles and locks wow. and stuff wow. like that. Great work. And uh, there's a fun scene of him, you know, crumpling up the cannons and eating them. I yeah. love that. It's just a fun movie. Um, and not to put too fine a point on it, we'll just both say that you should probably go see it. Yeah. And, um, guess that's it for this episode. I'm so Polga sorry to see you go, <laughs> but <laughs> we had to end this up sooner or later. Um, and again, I want to say thank you to George for coming on and, uh, I guess sort of giving me the confidence and the, the means to do an episode like this, because I think with all those concerns I was having, it is much better to do it with a second person because, had George not been here, you know, I'm giving off these interpretations and it kind of just seems like I'm stating this as fact. This is the way it is. But, you know, he's allowed to be he's there to be a little bit reticent and call me <laughs> out when maybe if if something I'm saying is incorrect or maybe too too much of a stretch. So I was really glad to have you on this one. Yeah. Cut back to 10 minutes ago when I was like, yeah, that's the one. You're totally right. <laughs> 
So, yeah. Um, no, listen, truly my pleasure. You know, like you said, I really invited myself on this episode. So, um, thanks for having me, man. I, I love coming on the show and talking with you because you know so damn much. And, uh, it's just a delight every single time. Yeah. So thank you. I want to, uh, go ahead and give you the opportunity to plug anything you have in the works for your own podcast. Yeah. I mean, hey, uh, check out the best little horror house in Philly. Um, we're everywhere that you listen to podcasts. Like Chris said, he's been on, on an episode talking about It's Alive. Uh, if you really enjoy the show, you can even find a bonus episode with Chris and I talking about the really cool, also experimental film Begotten on the Patreon. That episode rules. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, we got all kinds of cool stuff coming up. Joe Wangert is going to be on the show. That's awesome. Mm. You just check it out, folks. And Little Horror PHL on Twitter. Yeah. Go ahead and give all your credentials or places where people can find you uh, that's pretty i mean little horror phl that goes everywhere but also i'm mostly on twitter i don't do the other stuff that much <laughs> even <laughs> yeah. though i'm on it you could follow maybe i'll be there twitter's really where you want to find me gotcha and if i'm correct this episode might be releasing on the same day as one of george's podcasts where he will also be talking about Polgasari independently so you have that what? to look for. I am? Well, if if this is coming out the same day as your uh, mailbag ep, oh, yeah. then it's <laughs> okay. possible that we're going to have a double wow. Pulgasari wow. Monday. That's that's a beautiful Monday, baby. Yeah, so we look forward to all of that. That's all I got. Got any parting words for our listeners? Go watch Pulgasari. It's really cool. Hey, co-signed. Bye. Thanks for listening. And again, be sure to check us out on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Drop by our website, channel83.video, and be sure to join our Discord server to join in on the fun. Follow us on Twitter at, at channel83pod, or send us an email at channel83podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, Long live the new flesh. Long live the new flesh.